in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. That's the second, la- second to last book of the Old Testament. Word of introduction. Uh, we're now starting the second half of this book. Most of the first half had these very unusual dreams and visions and angel explaining some of them. But now it's similar to the rest of the Old Testament prophets. The setting is that the Jews have come back from exile. They're slowly rebuilding the temple. They've got bogged down. They're not going back to the idolatry for which they had been sent into exile. But instead they're developing a cold, formal religion. It's on the outside, but not on the heart. And that would later develop into the legalism of the Pharisees in Jesus' time some 400 and something years later. Here's a lesson. They swang from one extreme to the other, from idolatry, from the pagans, now to this cold formalism, no more idolatry. Some people do that today. They live very wicked lives, irreligious. Then they fear they're going to die and go to hell, so they swing But they don't get saved. They become very legalistic and energetic in religion, but it's not in the heart. It's all outwardly. Let's don't swing from one to the other extreme like the Jews. Okay, tonight's message is entitled, Zeal for Zion. Verse 1, again, the word of the Lord of hosts came. and That's been said half a dozen times, so it says here again. And you could put in there, again and again. God kept speaking to Zechariah and the other prophets. Lesson for us is God still speaks through those same prophets, through the books that they wrote. And so um, this could be repeated through the whole Bible. Again, the word of the Lord spoke in Genesis, Zechariah, Song of Solomon, Romans. God still speaks today. We should still listen. Jesus said, if any man or woman has ears to hear, let him hear, hear. Not just with your physical ears, but with your heart, the ears of the heart. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's a term for God. Hosts means the armies of heaven, the angels. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal and with great fervor I am zealous for her. Notice, zealous, great zeal, great fervor. What is zeal? One theologian said we can be defined as earnest protectiveness. And it's actually the same word for jealousy. Think about that. Zeal, jealousy. It's almost spelled the same. According to the Bible, there's a good and bad zeal, a good and bad jealousy. We often use the word jealousy in a bad way. A husband's unnecessarily jealous for his wife and is suspicious of her. Uh, but there's also a good jealousy. Uh, where a husband says, this is my wife, you know, and man makes a pass at her and he says, hey, buddy, this one's taken. That's a good jealousy and jealousy for your children. You know, I've seen mothers get very angry when someone threatens their little child. Like the Bible says, it's like a mother bear protecting the little cubs. You don't mess with a baby cub with the mothers anywhere around there. Did you know the Bible says God is jealous in a good way? For example, it's in the Ten Commandments. Would you be able to name which one? Verse 5, it mentions uh, Exodus 20, verse 5. God does not want graven images because he said 
The Lord is jealous. He says, don't go after those images and statues. I am jealous for my glory. And it says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then in Exodus 34, 14, it says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Exodus, Ezekiel 39, 25, God says, I will be jealous for my name. So don't use his name in vain. God says, that's my name. Don't just use it, you know, OMG and things like that. And people use it so flippantly. God says, I am jealous for my name. Also, he's jealous for his glory. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I will not give my glory to another, including the idols or to us. God is jealous for that. And here we're told he's jealous for Zion. Now, Zion refers to the mountain in Israel, in Judah, and upon that little mountain, that Mesa, was Jerusalem. We'll mention that again in verse 3. So he's zealous for Zion. He's jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And with great fervor, I am jealous for her. So he says, for her like she's my wife. But that's not just for Old Testament Israel, the people of God. That applies to us. Let me show you an interesting verse on this. And it's variously translated, but turn to the book of James. Brother Vic, have you started teaching James in Sunday school now? Okay, so all adults come and listen to Brother Vic. I wasn't there today. So look at the book of James. And would you know this verse? James chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5. Adulterers and adulteresses. And that's not necessarily physical, but spiritual. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You play around with the world, that's like adultery. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns for us jealously? Remember this morning's lesson? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he loves us like a husband loves the wife. The mother loves the children. He's jealous. And it says here the Holy Spirit yearns for us jealously. He doesn't want us to play around with sin. He's jealous and zealous. Go back to Zechariah now for verse 3. Going through this verse by verse. It's a little bit longer chapter than the previous ones. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord again. Notice over and over again. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. 9, same thing. That's God speaking. God still speaks the Holy Scripture. So in verse 3, he says, I will return to Zion. Zion is one of the names for that mountain. A small mountain, big hill that Jerusalem is on. Remember I mentioned in the previous lesson the movement called Zionism. Theodore Herzl, a Jewish um, leader in the late 1800s, said Jews need a homeland. And the only homeland is uh, Haaretz, the holy land, Zion, Israel. And the movement took over and grew and grew. And uh, they eventually became a nation in 1948. And that's the nation of Israel today. It goes back to that. I will return to Zion. Now, Zion has been misused by various cults, such as the Mormons. They have a headquarters someplace in Zion, Illinois, and they, they, they think that Salt Lake City is the new Zion, or they say that's the literal Zion. No, they're 
wrong. And God says, I will return to Zion. Now, the Bible talks about various comings of the Lord. He's everywhere, but this refers to God moving and manifesting his presence in a certain way, and that's compared to a coming. And, of course, the greatest coming was first the coming of the Lord Jesus, the first time, and then the second coming. So this is not talking about the second coming, but he's saying, I will return to Zion. I will return because... Because of their previous idolatry, God forsook them. God warned them for hundreds of years, look out, you follow those idols, it's them or me. You want them, then you won't get my presence. He withdrew his presence. He does that with us too when we sin. And then he said, you'll be sorry, I'm going to send you into exile for 70 years. And then he brought them back. And then when they came back, they returned to the Lord. They said, no more idols. And God had said, return to me and I will return to you. How do we return to God? R-E-P-E-N-T. Repent is the same as return. We turn from God and sin. He says, turn around, return back to me. And that's repentance. And God says, if you return to me, I will return to you. And so God says, I will return to Zion and do them much good. They had been chastened. They had learned their lesson. And he uh, repeats his promises to them. When did this come to pass? Well, looking at Bible prophecy, you see, it's not always easy to tell which category. Some prophecies are fulfilled in the immediate future, literally. Other ones are fulfilled much later Symbolically and spiritually in the New Testament in the church and then other ones in the millennium or even in heaven. And believe me, it's not always easy to say which time period is this fulfilled in, and sometimes it's a little bit of each. So God did return to Zion when he brought them back from exile. He says, and I'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And he did return. By the way, it's called city of truth, no longer the city of lies. Idols are called lies, lying idols. This has been referred to, by the way, and you've heard of Augustine. He wrote a large book called The City of God. And he said, in the world, there's always been two cities, kind of like a tale of two cities by Dickens. And he says, one of them is the city of the world. It is the city of lies and of the devil, the other city is God's people, invisible. They are the city of God, the city of truth. And he mentioned this verse. There's a lot of truth in that. Which city do we belong to? And he mentions the holy mountain. There's other mountains in the Bible, and only one, to my knowledge, is called holy. That was Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments. And these mountains have various symbolism. Galatians 4 talks about two different mountains. But again, um, as I said, like prophecies are fulfilled sometimes literally, sometimes spiritually, sometimes both. There is a spiritual Mount Zion. Anybody know what it is in the New Testament? I'll tell you the answer. Hebrews 12.22 says, we have come to Mount Zion. And that's writing to Hebrew Christians saying, Mount Zion is not simply that hill down in Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the people of God, heaven on earth. Heaven is the ultimate Mount Zion, but if we're Christians, we're the spiritual Mount Zion. We are the holy mountain. 
Now back to the Zion over in modern day Israel, Jews and Muslims are still fighting over that special piece of real estate. By the way, the um, secular Jews, and there are a lot of secular Jews over there, the atheists and agnostics. And then you've got the very, very orthodox, you know, with the curls and the black hats and all that. And they want to defend Israel for different reasons. One of them said this is a bulwark against any more persecution like in the Holocaust. And we know the, the Muslim fanatics would like to drive us all into the sea. So they said, we're going to stand our ground here. It's not particularly religious. But the Orthodox ones say, this is Ha'eretz, the land. And we can, without the land, we'd be wandering all around the world. So they look at it differently. But they, all parties concerned, look at that mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple once was. The temple was torn down in 70 AD. It's not been rebuilt. Even the Wailing Wall is not part of the temple. That was a wall outside the temple. And that's a little bit that still remains. And Jews go there and, and worship. And some of them say the temple will be rebuilt there. Some other ones say, no, not until Messiah comes. But that piece of real estate is also considered holy to Muslims. They say that's where, you know, Muhammad went and Abraham went to heaven, things like this. So they're fighting over it for religious reasons. The real answer would be if both Muslims and Jews become Christians, they're not going to fight anymore. They'll say, we'll share the land, and the land is not the important thing anymore. Think about it. The important thing is the true Mount Zion, the true people of God, the true holy mountain. And if there is a truly holy mountain, it's not in or on Zion. It's near Mount Zion. What hill am I talking about? On a hill far away. Stood an old rugged cross, Mount Calvary, a little hill just outside of Mount Zion. That's the true holy mountain. I've got to do a Bible study on mountains in the Bible. Next verses four and five, that says the Lord of hosts. Another reminder, this is God speaking. It's like that phrase recurring dozens of times in the books of Moses where God says, do this, I am the Lord. It's as if, Mother or father says something to the children and says, now go and clean your room, go take out the garbage, do this. And the child says, why? Because I'm your father. Because I'm your mother. That's why you have to obey me. She that must be obeyed. That's what God said over and over to Israel. Do this, don't do that. Why? I am the Lord. Or in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God that delivered you from slavery. That's why you should obey me. So he keeps repeating this here. Thus says the Lord. This is not Zechariah or even the angel that's been bringing these messages to Zechariah. This is God speaking. Remember that when you read the Bible. You're not just reading the writings of Moses, David, Solomon, Hezekiah. You're reading the words of God himself. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So what does he say in the next couple of verses? Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Now you want to say, well, get out of the street. Chariots and horses are going to run you over. What it's saying is it's so peaceful. They're not at home hiding. The old people feel safe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if America was safe and you don't have to lock your doors at night? 
Children can play anywhere they want to. An elderly can go walking down the street day or night and feel safe. God is promising there will be safety to national Israel. The enemies will be kept away. And of course, that would apply to us spiritually. God protects his people. It even mentions the children playing games in safety. That's kind of a nice picture out there, the little children playing games. You ever wonder what kind of games did the children play in Bible days? You know, around the world, children play different kinds of games. And the settings of that tells you about it. For example, I guess some of the little children here, children, do you know how to do that ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, uh, ashes, ashes, all fall down? You ever wonder where that came from? That was from the Black Plague, the bubonic plague in England. Right, Jeff? And ring around the rosy. Bubonic played called, had red splots all over people. That was the rosy circle. And ashes, ashes. And that could be either achu, achu, or the ashes of the burnt bodies. And everybody falls down dead. What, what a grotesque setting for a children's song. But did you know in wartime, children will sometimes keep playing even when the bombs are going off. I've been reading about World War II and the Blitz and other ones. The children... Still play, children. The Bible does mention a couple of games that children played in Bible days. Anybody know what they were? Sally, you know. Jesus mentioned it. And again, it's a little unusual. He rebuked the Pharisees for not believing John the Baptist. And he said, the children, look, the children are playing marriage. A boy and a girl pretend they're getting married. Or they're playing funeral and they're playing little flutes. They pick children, imitate adults. And Jesus mentioned, he says, you Pharisees are like the children. That they, they, they say, you don't want to play games? Well, I'm going home then. And he says, you Pharisees are like that. John the Baptist didn't dance to your whistles. He didn't play with you. He came seriously. So just a little sideline on games in the Bible. When will this happen? This peace, well, there was peace temporarily in Israel. The enemies were kept away, but it was only temporary. And then later the Greeks took over, and then the Romans took over, and then it was like that in the days of Jesus. Verse 6 now, that says the Lord of hosts. It is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the word remnant. We know what that means in English, like cloth patches you can use to sew up a quilt or a remnant from, from a carpet, just a small piece. And you can sometimes go and buy carpet remnants for like your bathroom or the closet or something. It means something that's a little bit smaller and left over. This is a theme, or theologians call it a motif in the Bible. The true remnant within Israel was very important. They were the true believers, like David and Solomon and the prophets, whereas most weren't. But there was always a true remnant. Says the remnant of these people. Romans nine twenty seven talks about the remnant of Israel. For example, how many true believers were there amongst the Jews when Jesus was born? Very few. See if we can name some. There was Mary and Joseph and Mary's relations, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
There was old Simeon and old Anna. John the Baptist. Uh, kind of hard to name any others, but there probably were a few. And then, of course, here come the wise men, the shepherds. But it was just a small remnant. That believing remnant would grow from Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church. The remnant was used to produce something bigger. A parallel metaphor in the Bible is leaven. Leaven is not always a symbol of something evil. Sometimes it's good. What's leaven? Well, uh, do any of you ladies know how to bake bread? Okay. You, you, you put that flour in there and you put a little bit of water and maybe salt and you knead it and you punch it and do all that. Maybe you flatten it up and put it in the oven and, make, and it rises uh, because it has leaven in there. It's like yeast. But where does leaven come from? When you make that dough, the um, mother cook takes a little piece of it and sets it aside, maybe wraps it up in, you know, aluminum foil or something like that and sets it aside and then the rest of it causes the bread to rise. That's the remnant. But she leaves it after a period of time and it begins to ferment. Like fermented grape juice becomes wine. And then next time she makes bread, she takes a little bit of that and it puts it into the next loaf. In other words, the remnant of the previous thing now causes this other thing to rise. You get the picture. The Old Testament remnant becomes the leaven for the New Testament church that begins to grow. It's not a completely new thing. It's continuing on from the old in a new way. But Christians are still a remnant in the world. Well, obviously much smaller than all the other religions and irreligions in the world, but even amongst those in the world that claim to be Christians. Most of them are not true Christians. You get Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, the cults, liberal Protestantism, all forms of false Christians, but there is a remnant. Evangelical Baptists, Evangelical Presbyterians, our Pentecostal brethren, these are the true remnant that's small, but it continues to grow. What about amongst about physical Jews? There is still a true remnant of Israel today that are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these others. They're the Messianic Jews. Jews that really, anybody know any Jewish Christians? I've been privileged to know a few. These are the remnant that the Bible predicted that most Jews won't believe in their Messiah, but there'll always be some. I got a book in my library that lists hundreds and hundreds of Christian Jews over the last 2,000 years. There's always been that remnant. And praise God, in the last 50 or 60 years, that remnant has grown. Jews for Jesus and others like that. They're still in the minority amongst Jews, but they're the believing remnant. Get back to the verse here. It's marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord, remnant. Word marvel, marvelous means cause for marveling, amazement. God says it's marvelous in their eyes and it's marvelous in my eyes. We should never lose the sense of marvel and wonder at what God does, what he did do, what he will do. And we should be astonished and amazed and move to worship him. Now verse 7, another thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, 
By the way, when it says behold, literally that means look at this. But it's also calling our attention. Pay attention to this. I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. The east would refer to Babylon, Persia, and Assyria that had taken turns attacking Israel. Who are the people from the west? You know, your geography, the west means Mediterranean Sea. But it also meant Greece and Rome that will become conquerors of Israel. And God said, I'm going to protect you from them. Oh, yeah, they'll have the troops there, but I'll still protect you and that those kingdoms will crumble. For centuries, the Jews have been persecuted as they wander around the world. Remember, I mentioned that old legend of the wandering Jew, this Jewish man that supposedly mocked Jesus on the way to the cross and Jesus supposedly cursed him. You're going to wander the world until I come back again. That's an old legend. But it's symbolic of the fact that most Jews in the time of Jesus rejected him and for 2,000 years they've wandered all around the world. There's no place in the world where you can go and they're not Jews. Did you know there are even Jews in Iran? Our brother from the Middle East will say, yes, they are people of the book. They're given a certain safety. But you'll find them, you know, start. My mother grew up and her best friend was a Jewish girl named Bettina. In just a tiny, hardly even a village in South Texas. And uh, the, the family, they were good merchants, had a general merchandise store. And so they're good merchants and they move into an area. They're always moving around. And God says they're going to come back one day to Haaretz, the land. But they're also, one day, according to Romans 11, they're going to come back and believe in their Messiah, Jesus. Some have, already more will come one day. I will save these people. I will bring them back, verse 8, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So they came back from the exile, and then other ones came back from the dispersion. Dispersion meant they're scattered here and there. The wandering Jews around the world, not this silly idea of the lost tribes of Israel and cults have weird views about that. But um, as I've said before, some of the Jews actually stayed back in Babylon and in Persia. I don't know if they stayed in Assyria, but they stayed there. How do I know? Because a lot of those Jews started little Bible study groups called synagogue, synagogues, and that one of the men would be the teacher, the rabbi, the rabbi. And that's where that custom began. And many of them stayed back there. And those rabbis got together and wrote down the traditions that they had always heard. And they wrote all this down in this massive set of writings called the Babylonian Talmud, which every rabbi in the world today studies. It goes back to Jewish rabbis that stayed back in Babylon. And so they've gone around the world and some of them went back to Jerusalem. But uh, God says here, says, I will bring them back and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So they did come back from Babylon and Persia, but not completely yet. Most Jews still live outside of the land. And as I said, there was a movement called Zionism that said, let's go back to the land. And so in the last, what, 150 years, there's been that increasing movement to go back to the land. And we saw more and more of that in the 20th and early 21st century. Israel became a nation, 1948. 
And so that's one of the fulfillments of this. Notice also it says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. In a sense, Israel is still the people of God, but the ultimate people of God are the true believers, whether they're Jew or Gentiles. Notice that phrase. This is found numerous times in the Bible. They will be my people. I will be their God. That's God's great promise in all of his covenants. For example, in the Ten Commandments, God said, don't have any other gods. I am the Lord your God. Um, I've mentioned this before. I guess I can say it again for about two minutes. Um, Scholars of the Bible began to notice something, oh, starting about 1948. Similar wordings and dealings between Jews in the Bible and some of their neighbors They've, they discovered some of these treaties and covenants by different you know, Canaanites and Egyptians and whatever called the Suzerainty Vassal Treaty. And it was very interesting. It was like a binding covenant and the king that enforced it was called the warlord, the suzerain. And he says, I will be your suzerain. I will be your warlord. I will protect you. You will be my vassal. You will obey me. Let's shake on it. As long as you follow me, I will protect you. Doesn't that sound like the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. I will protect you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And the same idea continues even in the New Covenant. God says, if you believe in Jesus, you will be my people and I alone will be your God. So this interesting how the scholars said there's similar language here that so when God spoke to Israel, he was using language that the neighbors would understand. The Jews said, yeah, it's the idea that he's our only God and we're his only people. This is a good covenant, a good treaty. And it's in truth and in righteousness. That phrase, uh, you'll be my people and I will be your God, that's found in a variety of settings. Uh, do any of you ladies know when that's found on the mouth of a certain lady that was not a Jew? but became a Jew. Hmm? Ruth, okay. Remember, where was she from? Someone shouted out. Moab. Moab. And yet her mother-in-law, Naomi, was a Jewess, and now she wants to go back to the land, and uh, Ruth's husband had died, and she said, "Um, I'm not going to leave you. I will go with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I was thinking of this great covenantal promise. She was converting to the people of Israel and to the one true God. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, when you share the gospel to someone, say, you need to belong to God. And when you do, you're in his covenant. He will protect you. He will be your savior. He will deliver you from all of your sins and from the devil. He will be your suzerain. You will be his vassal, that is, his, his servant. Just a little colorful explanation to the language. Verse 9, this says the Lord of hosts again. Let your hands be strong. You have been uh, hearing in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. So he gives encouragement. Do a Bible study. Get out of concordance. Look up all the times God says things like, be strong, do not be afraid, Do not fear, be of good courage. What does it mean to be of good courage? It means to encourage someone, to put courage in. 
We're natural born cowards. But God says, I will encourage you. Be strong. I'm on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to encourage other people too, by the way. And so he mentions these various people here. says that these by the mouth of the prophets spoke on behalf of God when this rebuilding began. Verse 10. For behold, excuse me, for before these days there were no wages for man nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. In other words, he's reminding them when you were exiles or when you were poor and you were, you were always afraid. God says, that was then. I'm going to do something better. Peace, prosperity, even material prosperity. And so he promised to, to deal with this remnant. And he says, they're going to be rebuilding. They're rebuilding the temple. By the way, that was the number one priority. When they came back from the exile, they didn't just worry about food and the farming. God says, no, start with rebuilding the temple. Oh, there's a big lesson there. We look at America and all the rampant sin. We need to rebuild the worship of God in the house of God, in the local churches. And it should start there and maybe God would bless a nationwide revival. So they began to rebuild. And they were still living in rubble, just like if you've ever seen a uh, documentary about Germany after World War II. I mean, it was leveled to the ground, especially Berlin, but they rebuilt. God says, I'm going to help you rebuild and you'll have prosperity and peace again. Talking about rebuilding the, um, the temple and the worship of God, we got an interesting example. Another mountain. Elijah goes up there, confronted by 850 false prophets, and they start dancing and cutting themselves and worshiping this false god, Baal, and his wife, Asherah, and nothing happened. And so what did Elijah do before he prayed? It says he rebuilt the altar. The true worship of God is if to say, get that idolatry out of here. And he put these stones standing for the 12 tribes of Israel and built the altar and had a sacrifice, and God honored that. Bible not only says judgment begins at the house of God, but worship, and we need to rebuild it. Worship, that's number one priority for Israel and for us. We need reformation, like the Protestant Reformation, revival, rebuilding, and restoration of the true religion of God. Something interesting is said here. It says, I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. It's almost like God is taking the blame for persecution, but you look at it theologically. God works through providence in mysterious ways. He can take his hand of restraint off and people become very wicked and even God allows them to persecute the Jews and the Christians. He says, I will set them against another. See my hand in all this is is what God is saying. They meant it for evil, but God means, means it for good. Hurrying on, we're only halfway through, but the next half goes a lot quicker. Verse 11, now I will not treat the remnant, notice the word remnant, of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to do something new. He promises to deal with them, not by way of punishment, but by gradual restoration. It's kind of like when a parent has to spank the child for misbehaving, The child learns the lesson. God says, the parent says, you've learned your lesson. Now I'm going to do something. I'm going to take you to the state fair. I'm going to, you know, take you on a picnic. 
That's what God does with us. He chastens us, but then he reaffirms his love for us. Parents need to do this. We need to remember this. So he promises to deal with the remnant far better. Verse 12. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. God's the one that gives life to the seeds. Every godly farmer knows that. That also applies to human seed in conception. God gives or does not give. It's his choice. And there's spiritual blessings here. A lot of this did happen literally, but it also has symbolic significance. This cannot be used by the health and wealth people that say God always wants Christians to be very, very wealthy and drive Cadillacs and live in mansions. No, not necessarily. It says here the seed shall be prosperous, but prosperity is not necessarily physical prosperity. It can be spiritual prosperity, which is much more important, cannot be bought by money. Verse 13, it shall come to pass that just as you are a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. God turned blessings to curses and then he turns again the curses into blessings. Uh, Israel had become a curse because of idolatry. And God says, you want to follow that? Then you're going to be cursed. You remember the was it so many dozens of curses that were leveled in the book of Deuteronomy, the two mountains, you know, one will recite the blessings if they obeyed, the other one the curses if they disobeyed. Uh, marvelous thing is God can turn curses into blessings or blessings into curses. For example, God blesses all mankind with what we call common grace, health, beauty, music, family. But if a person rejects those blessings, they come back to haunt him at judgment day. How do I know? Look at Luke 16. Jesus told about that, that poor believer that went to heaven and this other rich man that died and went to hell. And God said to him, remember the good things you had when you were back on earth. You were rich. But look at you now. You're roasting in the fires of hell. Why? Because he misused those blessings that should have led him to believe in God. So I say again, the blessings of common grace, when they're rejected or misused sinfully, God transforms into curses. Turn that around. The bad times that look like curses, God can turn into blessings. And it gets back to Jesus. Galatians 3 says Christ was made a curse for us in order to bring us God's blessings. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts again, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. By the way, notice he said in verse 13, do not fear. Again, do not fear. Do a Bible study. Get out of concordance. How many times does God say, be strong, do not fear? God is on our side. So he can turn the curse into a blessing and he can protect us. He reminded them and we too need to be reminded. This is what preachers do when we preach. We remind you of God's promises. These were not just promises for them. Book of Romans says these things were written for our encouragement as well, whether we're Jew or Gentile or whatever. So he says here, um, I determined to punish you because of this idolatry your fathers did. 
And I wouldn't relent. I did punish them. So now I am determined to do good to to Jerusalem and to Judah and the nation of Israel. And that transfers to us as well. Verse 16, these are the things you shall do. Stop right there. Whenever God gives a promise, there's always some ethical application. I'm going to do this. Ten commandments. I'm the Lord your God, took you out of Israel. Therefore, you do this. So he says, I am determined to do this. Therefore, speak each man truth to, each, to his neighbor. We looked at that in Ephesians 4. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. It's like I'm starting all over again. You're back in Israel. We build the temple. We build your houses. Go back to the farms. But you have to lay certain cultural foundation stones. Which ones? He says here, justice, truth, and peace. Notice, judgment in the gates. The gates of the city were like the city hall and the police department is the center of government. You have to have justice, truth, and peace there. When I lived in Dallas years ago, uh, they had a big conference outside and tens of thousands of people attended. And it was called Judgment in the Gate, taken from this verse here. Verse 15, I'm determined to do good. He has the right to change his dealings like he had punished them. Now he's going to bless them. This is interesting how God worked kind of going this way and that way and you had to have wisdom to see what God was doing in history with his people. Sometimes the rabbi said, hey, only the Lord God, blessed be, he can figure out what he is doing. But that's why he sent prophets to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that and it's marvelous in your eyes, just trust me. Same thing in our lives. You may not understand, what is God doing in my life? Just trust him. He knows what he's doing. He's got an overall plan. He's going somewhere but he has a way of going round about to get there. Some have compared this to, uh, Cody, you know what I mean about in warfare, there's the overall strategy and the variable tactics, right? The overall strategy is we're going to win. And I'm a student of World War II. The strategy was it ain't over until we put boots on the ground in Berlin and in Tokyo. That was the overall strategy. But they had... Different tactics. Go to North Africa, come up through Italy, go through, and then there's on the eastern front with Russia, and then all this. In other words, the tactics can be variable, but God's going somewhere. God's going somewhere in your life, too. You might go through great tribulation. You might go through heartache and health problems. Don't fear. Trust the Lord. He knows what he's doing. He's got an overall strategy. You're going to win. You're on the winning side. Uh, lost my place. Verse uh, 16. These are the things you shall know. Oh, there's the application. Verse 17. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Remember this morning talking about malice. Put it away. Do not love a false oath. We talked about that earlier. About keep your vows and your oaths and your covenants. For all these things. For all these are things that I hate. In other words, people that break oaths and covenants and they hate one another, says the Lord. 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth. Those were mentioned earlier, these extra fasts that the Israelites had come up with in addition to the two or three that God had ordained. These shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Remember earlier he said, you're misusing these 
to get drunk at the fast when you should be fasting and you're doing it outwardly but not with your heart. God says one day, even those fasts will change. That would apply to us where people do mindless religion and God says, I'm going to change that so you're going to have true religion and true worship. Some would say it's, for example, how the vast majority of Americans misuse Christmas. But one day, if they become Christians, they see the significance of remembering the birth of Jesus. Notice it says here, don't think evil. Ephesians 4 calls it malice. Don't think evil, don't say evil, don't do evil. 18 and 19, well, we've already read verse 19 about keeping these fasts. Now, a fast usually meant mourning, and they put dust on their heads and they tore their clothing. But it says there will be joy and gladness in cheerful feasts. God will change the fast to a feast, just like he can change a famine to an abundance of crops. What's that verse? God can turn our mourning into dancing for him. Isn't there a Christian chorus like that? You have turned my mourning into dancing. So brother, that's an encouragement. God's not through with you. May look bleak at times. God still loves you. Look at the end of the road. It's going to be a great blessing. Okay, we end with verses 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Begins by saying there will be Jews all over Israel, not just in Jerusalem, returning to the Lord. And then it expands that to say, even these people from other nations. Now, that's not just talking about Jews that were dispersed in Egypt and Rome and other places. It's talking about Gentiles coming in, even converting to Israel, becoming true Israelites, even if they're not circumcised and join the tribe. I think this finds its ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament, where Gentiles, like you and me, we come to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We become true Israelites. Look at that in Galatians chapter 3. If you're a true believer in Jesus, you're a true Jew. Galatians 3 says you're the true child of Abraham. And so God is saying, I'm going to bless you. And like he had promised to Abraham, through you I will bless people from all the tribes of the world. Application was, Jesus said, therefore go into all the world and preach the gospel. I've got people out there that are going to believe and they will believe in this one true God just like the true remnant of Israel. Notice it's a call of prayer too. You know, every Muslim will say they have a call to pray and You've seen videos where in a certain Muslim city, a man gets on that minaret and, you know, calls out in Arabic and everybody has to bow down. God calls us to pray too. I call upon you to pray. Come to the prayer meeting, pray at home. And it concludes with this wonderful, mysterious promise. Ten men from every language of the nations shall grab a hold of the garment of a Jewish man and says, can we go with you to pray? We've heard that God is with you. How would you respond if all of your neighbors, I mean all of them, even the one that turns the rap music up late at night and keeps you awake or has a barking dog and 
you know, they get drunk in parties and deal drugs. What would you do if all of a sudden they lined up outside of your door and banged on it and you opened and said, well, what do you want? And they said, we know that you're Christians. We want to be Christians too. How do we become Christians? Please tell us. We want to go to God like you did. Would you be able to answer them? What if God did send revival? Because this has happened in the past where God sends his spirit across a locality and a lot of people say, we want to get right with God. Where do we go? I've got a neighbor that's a Christian. I'll go and talk to him. May God do that in Springfield, Illinois, United States, and around the world. God willing, next week we'll look at Zechariah chapter 9. You may want to read ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from the Lord of hosts through Zechariah to us. Help us to heed your warnings, to believe your promises, and to obey your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.